This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by my favorite commentator on Canadian politics and culture. She is a writer, a musician, and an activist based in Quebec City. She is the author of the book, From Demonized to Organized, Building the New Union Movement, a very slick gun for hire. You've seen her writing in a variety of publications, including the Globe and Mail, the Walrus, the Nation, the Washington Post, the National Observer, and more. She's also the co-host of the podcast, Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. She is here via the magic of Zoom. She is Nora Loretto. Nora, how are you? Oh my gosh, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so I'm stoked. Great. <laughs> I am too. I, like We were supposed to do this in real life, I think like around this time, weren't we? I think so. That's what we were chatting about. And you said you might be in Vancouver around this time. Obviously, the world has changed. And you know yeah. what? I'm actually... I actually wanted to start off the chat with a, hey, Nora. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but far be it for me to usurp any of the magic that Sandy Hudson brings to your podcast. <laughs> She's irreplaceable. So Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to hear your voice. We have chatted online quite a bit in the past. Yeah. But I think this is the first time we're like chatting over the phone or over the internet. Uh, yeah. In terms of audio. Yeah. Our, our relationship is leveling up. Right. <laughs> it's a big milestone. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I appreciate you coming onto the show, knowing full well that I'm a mushy centrist at heart and that I'm going to <laughs> unabashedly basic bro my way through the next hour. So thank you for I love being it. here. How are you holding up in self-isolation? I'm doing all right. Uh, the conditions for my isolation are pretty ideal. Uh, I mean, ideal. Like, I've got two kids. So that sucks. <laughs> and um, they are the same age, which is kind of magic to see twins um, have this, like, really cool relationship and mm. be their best friend. But they're also their worst enemy. And so every 20 minutes, I mean, one is actually trying to kill the other. So that's really <laughs> stressful. But, you know, we're safe. We're healthy. Um, my, one of my kids was like the last flu season, last year's flu season, he landed mm -hmm. in the ICU. Oh, so it's, wow. yeah. So it's been pretty stressful to like really hopefully avoid this virus. Um, and I'm sure you've seen the news out of Quebec, like Quebec has been hit really, really hard mm -hmm. by the coronavirus. So all things considered, we're healthy and we are doing really well. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. And, and that's the thing, you know, I think everyone is taking on varying degrees of stress, but I am healthy. I am in a financially stable position, so I can't really complain. But I think being single and living alone has its other stresses where you're just totally, kind of bored. Oh my God, you must be texting like everybody you know or something. <laughs> I am texting people. I am calling people. I had the saddest realization the other day that it's been like way over a month since I've had a hug and I remember oh, the hug yeah. and I, I, I wouldn't have known that that would be the last hug I'd get for weeks on end. <laughs> uh, you know what's really interesting about that is I'm hearing from my male friends, uh, mostly single but not all actually, mm -hmm. that they miss hugging the most too. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I'm just an emotional weird. guy. I'm, I'm a super friendly extrovert so it is with its challenges, absolutely. 
But hey, one one thing I find fascinating, and you just brought this up, you know, citing some of the guys you know, we're starting to realize how much we need each other. We, we need people at the grocery store. We need nurses, delivery people, friends, family. A lot of things that maybe we were taking for granted are now coming to the forefront of importance. And I'm curious what you think. Are we waking up to this realization of how much of an illusion individualism is? Uh, you know what? I love it. <laughs> that was such a great question. Well, and I don't want to take away from people's you know, self-actualization or autonomy, but I'm kind of skeptical of the messages that we've been socialized with. Yes. Yeah. So neoliberalism, which is the economic, I mean, what are we right off the bat? It's like, here's a lecture on neoliberalism. <laughs> Please define Neoliber- it. Absolutely. <laughs> neoliberalism is, is, is the economic system under which we all live. And it is predicated on the lie that we don't need other people, mm-hmm. that society exists with within little atoms, right? So either you're an individual or you are a family unit, but together you're you're just one. You're just one thing. Mm-hmm. And and we can move it all online. Yeah, we can do the online shopping. We can do the online uh, dating. We can we can have our friends all across the world, and everything's fine because the internet has made all this possible. And it's funny because I was actually just writing about this today that uh, before the coronavirus, and I mean, I, I imagine that you and I are about the same age, probably. I don't know. I'm 35. <laughs> oh my God, we are the exact same okay, age. Okay, perfect. So, you know, we both experienced a world that was pre-internet, but mm-hmm. barely, right? Like, I mean, I remember my, my family getting its first computer when I was exactly. 10, yeah. right? I remember the first time I was in a chat room. I remember like, I mean, this is really nerdy, but it was all my gifted friends because the government cut our programs. So my first chat room was to tw- chat with these gifted kids okay. who I had been in school with for two years before. And then I was landed back into like full, full normal programming. Mm-hmm. And I just missed them so much. So it was just this mind blowing experience. But for people that never, like for digital natives that had never lived without the internet, mm-hmm. like how do you describe the world without the internet to someone that's only known a world with an internet? Yeah. I remember being young when I know we're digressing a little bit, but I just want to bring this up. I remember being young (laughs) and if I ever had a question, and this is when I was in elementary school, my mom would literally have to take me to the library and we'd have to pick out a couple of books and then I'd bring it home and then I'd learn about it as compared to now where you just Google something on your phone and then you don't even bother reading (laughs) the, the, the Wikipedia page that you pull up. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest ways that I was uh, a privileged little uh, shit as a child was that my father was a librarian. And oh. so that was the exact way that I did all of the research for all of my projects by by asking my dad to just bring home books from his library mm. on whatever I was researching. And so it was just like this amazing resource that I had. I mean, I grew up, my, my father had uh, uh, something like 200 magazines come to our house every month <laughs> because they were all for his library. And so I grew up reading everything from ad busters to people to Entertainment Weekly to, I mean, name it, to The Economist. Wow. And, um, and, I, and now it's like big fucking deal. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can see that all on Twitter based on who's got a paywall and who doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, yes, the world is, is profoundly changed. And I was, th- I've been thinking about this a lot because my book deals with feminism and how feminist action is changed um, in the digital era. Mm-hmm. And I have always been like, like interested in trying to describe what that, that, that has done to us, you know, like that, that classic, the fish within the, 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 the bowl of, of water. How is the fish explaining 
the water that he's in, mm-hmm. right? That's like us. How do we explain this neoliberal existence when that's all we know? Yeah. And then poof, a fucking global pandemic <sighs> shows up and is like knocking at our door saying, guess what? You fucking need people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you need others. <laughs> And we know we need others, right? We obviously know that. Like, people are not rushing to get married um, alone and quietly and, and with no one watching, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason why we still gather. But when you can't gather, I mean, what a profound outcome, I guess, that, like, you know, on the silver lining side of things, a gift from this period where we can step back and say, yeah, we actually do need that human connection. And you know, mm-hmm. I like I'm really lucky because I get to travel a lot and I see a lot of my friends from across the country who I don't get to see every single day and then I also have my friends here and I make a really strong um uh what's that word? I make I make a strong effort to go out with my friends even though I've got kids and a partner. Like I go to the bar and I go to coffee shops and I meet up with people and I'm try I try to be social. Mm-hmm. And so I was under no illusions before this happened how much we needed people, especially considering I write about it all the time. But but I do think that it turns a lot of economic assumptions on their head. Right from well, I don't I don't need the health system, so I don't I don't need to pay for it. Like that kind of fucking bullshit. Yeah. Which like some like bottom dweller was trying to like, you know, argue to me a couple of, of, of weeks ago before the, the pandemic, so maybe two months ago now. Mm-hmm. And and it's just like, no, like look, like almost a hundred people died in Quebec on Tuesday. Uh, 75 people die, uh, 63 people die, 50 people die every single day in Ontario, in Quebec. You know, British Columbia has had its share of death as well. Alberta mm-hmm. has too. And and these deaths are the direct result of our collective failure to understand how we are connected with one another. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's laid bare. It's unfortunately laid bare in a moment of complete uh, tragedy and horror. Um, but, you know, we are on a collision course. We are on a collision course with destruction thanks to climate change and so it's obviously going to take something horrible and major to wake some people up now you can listen to those of us who are saying this all the time and not <laughs> not need the, the the crisis to wake you up yeah but but that's where we are well it's interesting because it's also this realization of the fragility of certain institutions i mean we think of our healthcare system as very robust and strong and if you've never had to use it you see it that way and it does have its strengths as well but this crisis has highlighted the fact that it has its limitations and its capacities and if those are overrun then you're fucked right then you're making decisions of who lives and who dies and you're trying to figure out where to put sick people and you're short of equipment and that's something that our generation and maybe even the generation before us hasn't really had to think about with regard to capacity or the generations just after us, uh, 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 after us, before us. I mean, above us and below us. Yeah. I mean, the, the, we we actually have just done such a good job at hiding death within society that that we have allowed the system to get to the point where it has gotten. Like, mm-hmm. of course, the healthcare system decides who lives and who dies. That's what the healthcare system does. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in a hospital and your d- doctors, nurses, families—they're making these decisions all the time mm-hmm. every day and the problem is that this pandemic is is forcing us to witness the capacity mm-hmm. that these systems have and it's interesting because you started off by talking about the health the public health system and the limitations of it but it's not the public health system 
in and of itself that has let us down. It's actually the fact that government after government of all colors have outsourced the most fragile care of in society to the private sector. Mm-hmm. And in so doing has also created a, a public sector that is also completely understrained and plagued by the same issues that the private sector that they created is, is plagued by. Because long-term care in this country is not part of the public sec- system. It's right. not part of healthcare. It's not funded by the Canada Health Act. And it is wildly privatized. Mm-hmm. You know, like when the news came out of the Heron residence in Dorval in Quebec, that that the, the Montreal Gazette literally called it concentration camp like <laughs> and the residents there were paying between $3,000 and $10,000 a month to live there wow so i mean <sighs> like you know we these are these are issues that have existed for a long time anyone yeah. that's got any family that has gone through these systems know a lot of the problems that that that, that exist <laughs> and so then you've got to start saying okay well then what politician needs to be jailed what owner of these homes needs to be thrown in jail? How are we going to actually reckon with the fact that that people's lives were decimated right. by poor public policy, by years of neglect mm-hmm. and years of just cynical decision making uh, that usually took the bottom line or tax lowering taxes as being the most important um, the most important public policy decision that we can make. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that in some of the stats that you're compiling because you're doing a really interesting exercise and I think you should be getting paid for what you're doing actually, but we'll get to that a little later. But just to bring it back, is this the end of the world or just the end of neoliberalism? Oh God, it's neither, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's neither. So I'm being dramatic is what you're telling me? Yeah. I mean, it's the end of the world for the 2000 people that have died. There's yeah, no question about that. And, and 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 some of their families are going to feel like, you know, they'll never, ever get back what they've lost out of this pandemic. Um, but we also have to be very honest about how capitalism works. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have been talking about disaster capitalism. And I think that that is, it's a useful frame to talk about the United States. Mm-hmm. But disaster capitalism in Canada looks very different. And I would argue it doesn't quite exist here because capitalism in Canada <laughs> You'll love this. It has a, a red face, right? A, a liberal face. Sure. <laughs> um, it's it's kind and it's it's well intentioned, intentioned, and it's friendly to people and friendly to business. It is it, it is everything that's encapsulated by the Liberal Party of Canada, mm-hmm. and and so like it will morph itself. It will save itself from this crisis if we are not able to force our politicians to do the right thing. And there's a lot of moving parts on what that means. I mean, you know, in in Quebec, we've got a government that has never been in power, that's only been in power for two years and got in power by promising to to reform uh, long-term care. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also a right-wing government that wants to lower taxes and that I don't imagine would have done anything differently, but their hands are kind of clean. The, the liberals in Ottawa, I mean, they've been in power for a long time. And then, you know, going back before the Harper conservatives were, of course, you know, the architects of the neoliberal Canadian state in the sure. 1990s. Right. And so like Trudeau, like the first rent break that Trudeau gives is not to people living in these long term care homes. These people are still paying yeah. to live in these homes. Right. Families have to pay. They have to pay when their loved ones are taken out so that they can die at home. Mm hmm. Right. You have to pay it to the end of the month if someone dies. It's just like, Hmm. okay, so there's no rent break for those folks. But who did get a rent break? 
Air Canada. Air, right? Air Canada got a rent well, break. Well, the day we're recording, uh, he announced some rent breaks for property owners. Yeah, today for small business owners. Yeah. So if you are not uh, independently uh, incorporated, <laughs> you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it's not the end of neoliberalism, but I do think that the 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 moment is there that is a radicalizing moment. And I think it's radicalizing, especially, and a friend of mine just sent this to me, um, just said this to me, that for folks who are mid-40s and younger, this mm-hmm. is the defining moment that will that will shape our future mm. as the baby, bo- baby boomer generation, you know, eventually dies and has to relinquish power. Mm-hmm. When we talk about neoliberalism, we obviously have to talk about trade liberalization and the liberalization of foreign direct investment and all that sort of thing. One thing I do find fascinating in terms of the COVID discussion, and we see this a lot on the right even, is both in Canada and the U.S., there's this outcry for producing more things like medical equipment, masks, and pharmaceuticals at home, or at least domestically within North America. Do you think that the globalized economy has finally shown its weaknesses when it comes to national security, at least us here in North America? Oh, I don't think that you can look at NAFTA in any other way, to be honest. Like the idea that the pulp that makes the N95 masks come from Western Canada, Mm -hmm. they're sent to the United States to be processed and then we have to buy them back. That's that's a normal supply chain, right? Like how many times does a car cross the border when, when it's being built? I don't know the number, but there's some like, like 15 times or something yeah or yeah and and so this is this is the problem with canadian with how we've formed our economy is that we are an economy that takes raw materials and sends them somewhere Mm -hmm. traditionally we sent them to the united states increasingly there's demand in china and so the discussion is do we send them to china Mm -hmm. and then we buy them back and on on mass massive scale examples and on small scale examples you can see where it doesn't work and where we have lost the ability to make sure that if Donald Trump becomes the president of the United States and you cannot reason with the man that, oh my God, we don't have any protective masks. Like, fuck, it's not as if 3M doesn't have companies, have uh, factories in Canada, right? 3M has tons of factories in Mm -hmm. Canada. They could like, hey, we could could be doing this. We could be doing all this. (laughs) And the, the other thing though that I think is so fascinating is that people know this. Like I had this conversation with my uncle once who is a, who's a diehard conservative. He's mm-hmm. a farmer. He's a, he spent his whole life as a dairy farmer and uh, and the farm is still his and his my cousin uh, his 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 son is farming an adjacent farm. And he took um, my kids around the farm to show them the farm. Mm-hmm. And so we're on the back of a of a tractor and and he was trying to like tell the kids and me that there was this like invasive bug that, you know, free trade is really great, but like these invasive bugs do come over to Canada through all of our back and forth shipping of stuff. And they've kind of decimated the old maple trees in the back of the field. Oh, <laughs> interesting. See, okay. You know, he's trying to like reason with the fact that this globalized world has had this like really direct impact on like the flora and fauna in Canada. Yeah. Even though, but free trade's still good. Don't <laughs> ask me how. Like, you know, he's also you know, an industry You have to look dairy. at the greater good, Nora. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I'm like, it's funny because I'm an internationalist, which means, you know, I believe like, like no borders and, and people need to be in solidarity with people around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also need to be able to make sure that we're not 
outsourcing literally everything in our lives. Like I would love to go back to a time where food, you ate food because it was in season, mm-hmm. right? Sure. What a radical thing. Like you don't get strawberries <laughs> in the winter. Big deal. Makes them taste better in the summer, right? Yeah. And even the idea of furniture, furniture used to be something that was expensive totally. and it would use expensive wood and you would actually pass it down, you know, as opposed to this thing that's disposable after five years. That's so funny because I mean, when I moved to Quebec city, uh, uh, we went from like a very small, well, small loft in Toronto to uh, quite a large apartment in Quebec mm-hmm. City. So we had no furniture for it. <laughs> and so all of my couches were in the basement of my in-laws. And we were just like, uh, we'll take that couch and that couch, you know, like <laughs> suburban living, right? Where sure. they're just, oh, all of our couches are just in the basement. We just got new couches. It's like, yeah, why not? Yeah. And so our couch came from uh, the war, <laughs> actually. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it came it came over from uh Germany, from post-war Germany, uh from my my my, my in-laws family uh after they survived the Holocaust. So Wow. Like, and they're yeah, still going? Really great. The couch is still there. Love uh, it. I mean, the most of the family uh died unfortunately. Of course, yeah. Uh, but, I, I was yeah. referring to the couches. But the couch is still there. I mean, we had to get it reupholstered and remade for the cushions cuz the children Destroyed it, which means now, now, like every day, because this is my new life, my partner is just yelling at them going, do you, do you know what this couch went <laughs> <laughs> The most ridiculous, this couch survived the war. Honest to God, that is every day he's yelling at the kids about this couch. But that is something that used to be quite common in terms of yes. reupholstering furniture because the frame was still good. Of course. Right? But now, like, I have a couch that's on its, literally on its last legs. It's it's junk, <laughs> you know. Like, what else yeah. am I gonna do? I'm gonna buy a new couch, and then hopefully the movers take uh, this one with them. So yeah, right. <laughs> on on the topic of trade, one thing that I do find interesting is that Canada has shown a certain complacency about doing business with authoritarian regimes when it benefits us. And China isn't the only one. But certainly they drive our economy and we've been actively courting their investment and we've been making our economy more dependent on their exports. When this is all over, do you think that Canadians or the Canadian government or just policymakers will reconsider who we as a country do business with? Well, I mean, that assumes that they're considering who we do business with for reasons that are beyond the bottom line. That's what I'm asking. Do you think they're going to put that into consideration no. more so than they did before? No? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Well, yeah. it, like, the, the the liberals are pragmatic in terms of they serve capital. Like, if, if, if we can get something cheaper, you know, in country X over country Y, we'll go to country X. Mm-hmm. It'll be very interesting to see if the conservatives pivot to a nationalist program. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in one sense of logic, it makes sense that they would because they are a bit like they're, you know, they're Canadian, the, 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 that kind of racist and xenophobic streak that's within the Conservative Party fits quite nicely with like Canada made and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually don't even think that they will because they're also uh, worshippers of the bottom line. And and the, the order of the day for these parties is going to be the status quo as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, what I think where you're going to see something very interesting um and I, I don't know what it's going to like, I don't know how this is going to play out, but Quebec, you know, Quebec as a, as a country, as a country. <laughs> uh, you just played your hand. Someday, I did play my hand. Someday, um, no, Quebec has that, that sense of, of nationalism, obviously. Mm-hmm. And there has been that use of that language a, a lot more in Quebec. Like we are making our own 
um, uh, uh, smocks. What are they called in in French? Is les blouses um, like uh, medical gowns, protective gowns? Yeah. Exactly. Thank okay. you. Uh, we're making those. We're making uh, face masks. We're making things uh, in Quebec so to make sure that we have these materials. And you know, there's there's a left wing logic behind all of this stuff, which is, of course, it creates jobs. Mm-hmm. It can it can it can power. It has powered small small communities across this country, like you know, industry towns based on creating something that we need within Canada. Mm-hmm. I think. Like left wing uh, people who have uh, economic minds need to be really pushing, I think, for that made in Canada uh, revival mm-hmm. while resisting the xenophobia that right. can so often go along with it. Yeah. And, and you know, like part of, partly like with medical supplies, a lot of medical supplies are made in Canada. Like Canada does manufacture a lot of, of medical supplies. I've spent a lot of time in hospital with my kid and I'm always like, you know, oh, Mississauga, Mississauga, Brampton, Mississauga. They're all made in Brampton and Mississauga, the stuff that we're using. Interesting. And that's yeah. the part of the world I'm from, right? So it's like, you know, oh, uh, you know, just got shipped up the 401, this nice little face mask or this nice little like, uh, you know, asthma inhaler or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we have the capacity to do that. And I think that we absolutely need to demand that because there's not much question that part of what is driving catastrophic climate change is is container shipping, right? It's our unbelievable reliance on stuff coming from overseas. And it's not good for anybody, right? It's not like the, the obsession with consumption is is going to be our destruction, is currently our destruction. Mm-hmm. And if we can place consumption closer to home, and we can see the impact of that consumption. We can see people being paid low wages and we can demand that their wages in their workplaces improve in terms of health and safety. Mm-hmm. I'm optimistic, but I don't know. Yeah. And, and that's what I was thinking as well. Like even for you, I would assume as an internationalist, someone who's standing in solidarity with workers around the world, I would assume that you would be inclined to say, okay, we can trade with a certain nation if their human rights, workers' rights are up to snuff based on what we deem is correct. You know what that's I mean? That's the problem. Yeah, that, that's where you get into the problem. That's right? where you get into the problem? Well, yeah, because, I mean, how do you judge uh, different value sets, let's say? Um, you know, you can say we will only trade with Bangladesh if they raise their uh, hourly wages. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, what... But, like the entire garment industry in Bangladesh is based on low wages. And so, like, right. Canada insisting that Bangladesh raises its standards it's like it doesn't really work like that it Mm. works it works in a different way it works in that you create other competing i mean this is the capitalist logic you create competing uh local factories that can that can make clothes that we don't have to ship around the world Mm -hmm. and that don't you know you look at the whole fast fashion phenomenon like the fashion industry is like what the top thing that's destroying the planet is that true yeah, yeah, I see that it is it is even worse than air, airline travel oh, and wow. airline shipping. Because it is it's like the textiles they use are toxic. Huh. The the you know, the things are being made all around the world and then they all have to be like sent somewhere else for another piece to be added to them and then they all mm-hmm. have to be sent somewhere else for like the final stamp to say that this was made wherever and then, you know, then it gets sent to North America where it's sold for like fucking 5 bucks or something. <laughs> right? It, yeah. Like if if that whole process was was actually happening in Canada, mm-hmm. like then you're not going to have a Rana Plaza situation, which I believe today is like the fifth anniversary or tenth. Oh my god, 
now my my years are all out of whack. It must be the tenth anniversary of the of the giant. This is going to come out two or three weeks after the fact, but right. Okay, yeah. so it's but it's the big anniversary of the of that factory fire in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, like, we are not going to be able to increase the worker conditions through globalization. I think that that is pretty mm-hmm. clear. That globalization yeah. was a race to the bottom, and using free trade agreements to try and force countries to like democratize (laughs) yeah democratize or boost like the working conditions it's just not how it works like it it, like democracy comes from below it does not come from across the ocean yeah i feel like and maybe this is me being naive or optimistic or idealistic but i feel like a lot of things are going to be rethought in our culture and our economy especially as this crisis is protracted longer and longer what else has the crisis highlighted for you in terms of things that have to be collectively re-examined? I believe you and Sandy reaffirmed this idea that all things are possible. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's just too much to list. Like, literally everything. If you <laughs> named an issue, I would tell you how it's been, like, proven to be uh, a, a sham or a fraud or whatever. Like, you know, you can go to the big issues like our taxation base, um, uh punishing companies that have that put their money in tax havens and Mm -hmm. keep it out of the Canadian economy. You can look at um, at the relationship between the provinces and how um, I mean, very quickly, the provinces all uh, shut down from one another, which is pretty Mm -hmm. interesting. Right. I mean, it made sense. It made sense why they did that. But what is the the new arrangement, the new federal arrangement going to look like when we emerge from this? Is it going to look the exact same? Or will the provinces want to have more power? Right. Um, there's going to be a whole bunch of changes to public health. I mean, public health agencies, there obviously needs to be more coordination between them because there's been just so many um, issues dropped uh, by public health agencies uh, because they think that their jurisdiction is so small and there's so many of them. Uh, look at the the horror in the meat packing industry that's happening mm-hmm. right now in Alberta and British Columbia, where um, you know again low low paid, uh, lots of racialized workers, mostly racialized workers, lots of immigrant workers uh, being forced into conditions that propagate the disease. In Alberta, they sounded the alarm. They said this is not safe. Public health and the government said it is safe, and you know now mm. a worker has died from Cargill. And uh, there's massive outbreaks at uh, the 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 two meatpacking facilities that provide 95% of the beef uh, to Canadians, which I also think is something that we need to really hmm. think hard about. Yeah, I think you know there there's uh, the healthcare system is very clearly uh, full of lessons that we need to learn. I I think that one of the things that is uh, very attainable is the conversations that we need to have around mental health mm-hmm. uh, and use. Use the um, need for everybody who's been on the front lines of this crisis. They all need to have fully paid, uh, well-resourced mental health resources for the rest of their life. Yeah. And and then you can say, okay, then how do we provide this to all Canadians? I think pharmacare is another good example of that and private uh, funding within healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also there's the whole side of urban planning, right? So our cities lose their cars and we realize that we can't, walk on what 90 percent of the surface area <laughs> sure. right yeah like what the hell is that <laughs> that doesn't make any sense yeah it, it they go it goes on and on the the lack of air pollution is just so wonderful and and again how many people are not going to die because of that mm-hmm. um that weird spinoff um and and then i've got some like kind of like like fun little things that i i feel like people do need to think of more like do we need to vacation so much outside of canada hmm. 
right? Do we need to, do we need to fly? I say this as someone that's fucking flying all the time. <laughs> do we need to fly uh, all the time for our vacations or should we be vacationing closer to home or in right. the province next door? Um, uh, do we need to spend as much time online or should we be making the time to go out and, and spend time with one another, whether it's in our apartments or whether it's at the local whatever library or the bar or, or, or a coffee shop, right? <laughs> and and like people are obsessed with this whole small business thing. Like small businesses are going to be the ones that lose out the most. It's like, yeah, it's because that's how the system was created. So if we really care about small businesses, how do we like completely change the set of incentives in this country that uh, that privilege Loblaws and Amazon yeah. over, you know, the mom and pop shops. Yeah. No, those are all good points. I was also thinking about there's a lot of jobs that have that were categorized as low skill. Yep. And yep. and low wage, but a lot of those jobs we need and they are necessary and we're seeing that in the crisis. Well, and what was like what's the lowest skilled job you've ever had and how hard was it? You were talking to a very privileged son of British Columbia here. Uh, <laughs> um, I see. Yeah, no, I mean, I really didn't work through university because I was on scholarship and uh, my parents let me live at home. Uh, I had some odd jobs here and there, like a parking attendant. Oh, okay. I mean, that's not easy. Uh, yeah, it was during the Cloverdale Rodeo. I think I was getting paid six bucks an hour at the time or the, what? the cloverdale rodeo the knockoff <laughs> version of the uh the calgary stampede oh my god can you tell michelle rempel that she could go and play there instead um i think it's canceled now but oh yeah, it has to too of course, yeah. of course the reason why i ask is because i mean i i i've worked a lot of really random jobs mm -hmm. and um there was one uh period of my life where i was making pizza at the same as playing uh, the organ at a mm. Catholic church. And one of those jobs is high skilled and one of those jobs is low skilled. And the low skilled job was way harder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could just show up and play anything I wanted for funerals. But my God, if I didn't get the right number of pepperoni on it, my manager, who was in my grade nine religion class and dropped out, yeah. like would swear at me. So it was like fucking not that easy. <laughs> yeah. So, so to the original point, I just feel like we should, and again, maybe this sounds super idealistic or whatever, but we should value that labor more than we have. And whether it is grocery workers or janitors or truck drivers or whatever it may be, people that are still having to work and effectively putting themselves at risk for not a lot of pay, I think we should realize that's, that some of that work was just being underpaid. Yes, absolutely. Especially when you look at how much profit has soared for the metros and the Sobies and the and like all these grocery stores. Sure, right? they're they're the ones that are cashing out major majorly mm -hmm. in this crisis. And the fact that that pro like that profit, if we had a government that had any courage at all, uh, Trudeau would would seize those profits and insist that they're given to everybody that's been working throughout this crisis. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's because of them those profits exist. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, we could spend hours sort of talking about the response effort from the federal government. And I know that you and Sandy have covered this quite a bit in your own podcast. But one thing I did find interesting was that the conversation that you were having with Sandy, you know, two lefty activists, was the exact same conversation that I was having with my corporate lawyer about the CERB, about the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. 
we were uh, myself and my my accountant we were discussing this and we were wondering you know why didn't the trudeau government just cut everyone a check knowing that high income earners would have to pay it back in taxes anyways like it would cut down on bureaucracy and administration and time just mail out checks why didn't they do that <laughs> uh because that's against the liberal brand <laughs> like the liberal party of canada like so many provincial counterparts, um, they want to be able to give out crumbs so that they can announce those crumbs every single day for 60 days. Mm. So there is a political strategy and machinery behind the response is what you're of saying. Of course there is. I mean, there, so that that's one answer. There's actually a couple of different answers for why they didn't do it. And it was very interesting because the CBC just jumped, you know, headfirst into the justification. Because mm-hmm. if you remember at the time that they first announced the CERB, um, the American response was similar, but they were going to cut a check. I mean, yeah. with all the caveats that it didn't work like that either. But but CBC was like, well, unlike the Americans in Canada, their argument, and this was the liberal argument, was that we have the, the appropriate and necessary structures to ensure that Everybody gets what they need, mm-hmm. right? And you're like, oh, okay, then that makes sense. We have the necessary structures to make sure that this can be distributed in a fair way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then all of a sudden people were like unable to argue for the universality of CERB because it was like, well, you just want rich people to get $2,000, right? It's like, yeah, that's what I want. Um, so it was hard to see. I mean, I saw it because I, I spent... 10 years fighting this government, the same people, the same ideals in Ontario with the Ontario, with the McGuinty government, it's the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that obvious if you aren't a cynical fuck and, and not just assuming that every single thing that Trudeau says is a lie. Like, and as I discover on Twitter, a lot of people don't think that he's lying all the time, but I mean, he is. So they gave, the liberals are allergic to giving money to poor people. And I think that you have to start, it's true, you have to start there to understand why the hell they didn't just give money to everybody because that obviously would have been the easier way to go. Mm-hmm. Or or not even that, or you could say, or they give it to everyone who, is, who applies, right? Sure, Anybody that yeah. applies gets it. So yeah. that cuts out that cuts out a whole bunch of people that aren't going to apply because they don't think that they need it because they don't, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and But they will not give money to poor people. And the reason that they won't give money to poor people is because they don't trust poor people to make their own decisions. And so instead, they'll give money to food banks and they'll give money to charities and to not-for-profits. And then you'll say, well, why don't you just give it to poor people directly? And then charity, not-for-profit people are like, poor people don't know what to do with their money. They don't even have a bank account. None of them use the internet. It's like, okay, then why don't you open the libraries to allow for two people in the library at a time? Well, then poor people don't go to the libraries, actually. They're just really poor, right? right? And so this is like the logic that's behind the liberal... I would say the whole liberal project, which is that you you are always working for that comfortable middle class, the upper middle class, and you know you will tango with the ultra rich and you will ignore the the poor, and all of your social programs are made to 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 make the the middle and the upper classes feel better, mm-hmm. right? Because because like the poorest people in Canada are getting are literally getting nothing from. The government, they're getting mm-hmm. nothing. If you didn't make $5,000 last year, you get nothing. Yeah. That right? is probably, like, the- <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say, you know, that's probably the best explanation to that question that I've heard because I, I asked it earnestly because I'm baffled as to why they didn't do it. And I'm not even 
coming from your end of the political spectrum. I'm just looking at it and 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 it doesn't make sense to me. I'm pulling you towards me though. <laughs> inch by inch, yeah, I'm getting there. Yeah. But cuz you can you can ask the same question for students. Why did students get 1200 bucks instead of 2000? Yeah. Yeah. Like it it makes <laughs> literally no sense, right? Because because then you're like, okay, the students, I guess, they're living at home with mom and dad, and then I was like, well, then why do they need anything? Mm-hmm. Well, because some students aren't living with aren't living with mom and dad. It's like, okay, then they need $2,000, do they not? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's again, and this this is with liberals, it's like they've 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 segmented society in their minds that certain people are differently deserving. And right. so students are a different class of people. They're not they're not mothers who are going to class at night they're not a 21 year old whose family uh lives on the other side of of canada or the world Mm -hmm. right they're just students and therefore they're worth less or the poor the poor they're the poor Uh, they're poor because they haven't figured out how to not be poor right it's just like are you kidding me let's just give them the two thousand dollars and then give money to the food banks like you're giving money to everybody you might as well yeah I think a lot of people, when you explain it to them that way, just in terms of why why doesn't he just cut out checks and you would pay back in taxes if you're earning an income anyways, they kind of get it. And and I think a lot of people are very confused as to why they didn't do that. So like I said, I think that's the best answer I've gotten uh, because it makes sense. And it's the only answer I've gotten because a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Well, it's because, you know, you're not going to hear me on the CBC. Right. <laughs> or someone like me. You know what? You're on This Is Van Color. That's that's this close. Is, this is all I need. This is perfect. <laughs> but but I mean, I mean, like, like you're, the national press corps is not yeah, going to describe absolutely. that like yeah. that. Right. Yeah. I want to go back to the list that you're compiling and it's related to the deaths in the covid crisis. And you're doing this for free. Although, as I said, you should be getting paid for this. And I'm surprised that the government has not tasked anyone to do what you're doing. Can you walk me through what stats exactly you are compiling? Yeah, so after uh, one episode of Sandy and Nora, where I was reading a list of Quebec-based uh, long-term care facilities that had multiple deaths, this was three weeks ago, so maybe four weeks into the crisis. Mm-hmm. I I was like, okay, these numbers are brand new. It was the first time we started to hear of multiple deaths, and they weren't that high. I mean, there was like six and five and seven or something. Mm-hmm. And but I, I, you know, we record on Sundays, and the and the podcast is posted on Tuesdays. So I said to myself, well, I've I've got to stay on top of these deaths because the numbers are going to change, like obviously. And so I put the call out on Twitter. I'm like, who's collecting this? I mean, you know, journalists have been reporting about all these deaths. We know that there's multiple deaths in different care homes. And nobody was. And so I started mm. just every day, and I'm doing this now every night, combing through Google alerts and the public health agencies that do post this information, which are, by the way, not very many, including British Columbia, um, and trying to put together the portrait of death within long-term care facilities. Because when you don't have that, you know, up until even this week, journalists consistently said almost half of these deaths are happening in long-term care. Right. Almost half, almost half. They were saying almost half and I had mapped it out to make it look like very clearly to be above half. Like no question, it's above mm. 50%, um more like 57, 58%. And as the death tolls continue to rise and as these outbreaks take their take their time, right? I mean, the deaths that happened today are infections that happened 2 and 3 weeks ago. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it started to become very clear that, you know, my list of now, I don't know, 80 institutions with outbreaks uh, of deaths between one and up to 67, I think is the highest. Um, that starts to actually paint a completely different picture than a journalist saying almost half of these deaths are happening in long-term care. Right. And so do you feel that the importance of compiling this data is related to what you were talking about earlier in terms of long-term care facilities not being covered by the government and and effectively being privatized? Yeah, absolutely. Like th that's the only way to account for why these deaths are so high, right? We're not seeing hospital outbreaks to this extent. There are some hmm. hospital outbreaks, but the the fact that these are ravaging private or para-private agencies and residences is is just such a condemnation of how we've built this system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like I did this only because no journalists were doing it. I thought that was a really shocking lack of information. I was really surprised that there wasn't any journalists doing it. Of course, they're doing it now. And they're like, oh, we never saw your list. And it's like, <laughs> uh, I mean, the Toronto Star literally had my number two weeks ago. But OK, yeah, sure. You didn't see it. OK. I mean, like at least say you anyway, whatever. Um. And so, you know, being able to to show these clusters of of death is really important because it starts to then remind you that these are communities mm -hmm. that every every person that's working in a in a long-term care facility, like these are people that they know. Mm -hmm. And so they're all dealing with multiple people that they've worked with for whoever like maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe a couple of years are are just now all dying. Right. And and it also helps to to kind of get out of this idea that this is uh, a Montreal issue or a Quebec issue or a Toronto issue. Like, you know, the 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 long-term care facility death rate across the world has been known. And I mean, I was scandalized to hear the first outbreak in Washington state, of course, not appreciating that fast forward six weeks and Canada would be right there in mm -hmm. the same, in the same level of, of kind of horror. Yeah. When we talk about long-term care facilities, we're talking about, Facilities for seniors, people with disabilities. What what is the spectrum here in terms of what we're talking about? Yeah, so um, by and large, it's it's uh, facilities for uh, seniors, uh, and and sometimes there will be uh, non seniors who live in these facilities, often Alzheimer's uh, patients, um, and then there's also residential care facilities where there's uh, people with disabilities uh, mm -hmm. are the primary. Uh, residents within those facilities so it's it's you know a mix uh, of the kind of residents and and so those are all regulated in one way every mm -hmm. province regulates long-term care in a very specific way it's like you know it's kind of like 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 quasi ambulatory care right they're going to be able to provide some medical services um there's a scandal that's breaking right now in quebec where a lot of these people are coming from uh what they're called in quebec ch uh, chslds without like any medical interventions. And so they're completely dehydrated. They're completely malnourished. Uh, just like the, the basics are not being met in these facilities. Right. Even though they're set up to be able to provide basic medical care. And then often they have to uh, feed, uh, either feed directly or help with feeding uh, care, uh, personal care, hygiene, bathing, and that kind of thing. But there's also a lot of residences on that list that are not long-term care facilities that are um, that are re uh, retirement residences. What you would imagine to be a retirement residence. Sure. So like the the community of fucking bustling meadows or something like this, 
where uh, it's autonomous living. It's an apartment. It's usually a, a quite a large block of people living uh, in, in, a, in like the same setting. Um, but there, there isn't the same level of care. And, and some of these facilities have two wings. So they'll have the long-term care wing and they'll have a retirement residence wing. The right. retirement residences aren't regulated. I mean, they're just, they're apartments, mm -hmm. but they do often come with a lot of extra services like food and, and other things like that. Right. And so that's where you get into a bit of the gray area, right? Because it's like folks who decide to move into one of these uh, retirement residences, you know, could just be looking to be in a community of people their own age, to be closer to services, to mm -hmm. not have to like shovel their walk anymore or whatever, right? versus long-term care which is you know you do need more help to be able to do uh to your day-to-day -day living yeah uh, and to also have a bit of dignity you know god willing uh part of that uh of that day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. so, so just to be clear the the autonomous apartments for seniors those are also included in your data set yeah they are okay. and i i started to try and separate them out and then it was just like it was too much there's yeah. just so many of them no and, fair enough well i i just mean like moving forward like looking at the difference between someone dying in a long-term care facility versus someone dying in a retirement residence it's quite an interesting difference right mm -hmm. because that means you know in long-term care that means that there's failures to protect residents against superbugs or against uh, virulent diseases or whatever and they're right. already vulnerable and all this kind of stuff staffing is obviously low in a retirement residence it's like d were there any at all policies to try and stop something from spreading through through a residence when people are more or less autonomous right yeah like we're not seeing apartment blocks on this list right? yeah. we're not seeing uh, we're not seeing subsidized housing on this list. We're not seeing like a lot of other situations where people live in close proximity to each other. Mm -hmm. So what about retirement residences has made this uh, so deadly? And, you know, they're not they're not a majority. Long term care facilities are by far the majority on the list, but it's probably two thirds, one third. OK, yeah. Well, I'll be interested to to keep a tab on it and see where it goes. And I assume you're probably going to write a piece about it uh, yep. once you've compiled enough data there's something out there in passage so you know you can check that out at uh, passage read passage is the uh, uh the twitter handle okay great nora i could not let you go without talking about hockey <laughs> oh okay you've gotten a lot of online backlash like no one can imagine for looking at hockey through a prism of maleness and whiteness and privilege. And in December, you wrote an incredible piece in the Washington Post asking Canada to reflect on how we've outsourced our identity to this very exclusive sport with a somewhat toxic culture. And you were onto this idea many years ago, and you took a lot of shit for it. But after the Don Cherry incident, after the Bill Peters scandal, it seemed like at that time in December, the national dialogue about hockey and its role in the Canadian identity was opening up. And your initial cultural question almost seemed to be validated despite a lot of backlash that you received two years ago. What does this relationship between Canada's identity and hockey culture ultimately mean? Oh, it means that we're kind of pathetic as a people, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, explain uh, that to me. Well, yeah. So the, so the weird thing for me about all the attention that I've received for my comments about hockey is that, I mean, I, 
I grew up in a hockey town and mm-hmm. nothing that I've said publicly is not something that like a ton of other people are saying, right? <laughs> yeah. Like if if you know guys who played hockey, if you spent a lot of time at the rink like I did, like if you <laughs> had to pull your friends out of brawls outside of the arena, which I did, I mean, there, there is screaming in the background. I'm not sure if you can hear it, but my kids uh, are fighting. <laughs> I, I assume it's just kids playing effectively. Kids being twins and yeah. fighting and yeah. All so, good. so Yeah. So nothing that I've said is groundbreaking or revolutionary or, or not something that hasn't been said a hundred thousand times. The, the problem was that, I mean, with the Humboldt stuff, it was turned into a, a weapon to make sure that I would stop writing and stop talking about it mm-hmm. because, and the reason why I say that that way is because it was very clear that the harassment that I received related to that, uh, was all in a, in an attempt to get me to stop, whether it was going to get me to voluntarily say, you know what, this is too spicy. I can't touch this, mm-hmm. uh, all the way to literally trying to get me to commit suicide because that was, that was the, the nature of the, of the pushback that I received. And 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 the reason why it was effective was because like like our national media is so uncreative and so unable to like think through some of this stuff mm-hmm. that it's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you trying to tell me that we only care about like a really horrible tragedy because they were white and young and male? And it's like, I mean, I'm saying that, but you can look at literally any measure in this country. And you'll see that I'm right. You know, you mm-hmm. can look at other tragedies. You can look at, uh, you know, the Toronto van attack happened two weeks after that. And my my hypothesis was laid bare again. Um, there is a reluctance to question everything on which Canadian identity is built. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because, like, we are an extremely anxious people about who we are. Because we don't actually have a coherent national identity. Our national identity has been forged in opposition to the United States. Sure. Yeah. I'm talking about English Canada, right? French Canada has a completely clear national identity. No, but that's English, a fair assessment. Yeah. Right. And so and so when that's the case, then you have this anxiety that is expressed across all platforms, across mm-hmm the media across our corporate world in in schools in how we talk about canada and how we talk about the values that we share i mean the the fucking way that trudeau has been talking about the 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 tragedy in nova scotia has been so jingoistic it's like if he could just give a little bit of the canadian fucking schmaltz that he's giving up to that tragedy to domestic violence and actually starting to name domestic violence name white male terror in very clear terms that would change everything but he's not going to do that because we are we are so afraid as canadians that we're going to be exposed for being frauds that we cling to the most pathetic cultural touchstones that we can and so that's not just hockey it's also canadian tire and tim hortons and it's winter i mean as if we're the only country in the world with winter my god and we're not even doing anything to save winter like what a bunch of pathetic fucks um yeah and so you know you start to chip at things and i'm chipping at things all the time right i mean when that tweet went out sandy got in touch with me she's like why like why did you go so soft on this issue like it's obvious Hmm. like you should have gone harder and i'm like i I should have and then you know (laughs) the world ended right 
Um, and so there are there are forces within society that want to make sure that people like me have no platform to say this stuff mm-hmm. because all I'm doing is saying Canada is fake. It sucks ass, and we need to like acknowledge that. <laughs> Yeah. And then we can come up with other cultural things. I mean, then then let's talk about, well, why don't we fund culture in this country? Why don't we fund uh, things to, to, to actually examine what Canada is and what Canadianisms should be and why people are proud to be can- Canadian and what is that pride and how is it good and how is it bad? I mean, there's a lot of really amazing stuff that, that this whole conversation could have, mm-hmm. except people are too afraid to even have the conversation in the first place. And so they're just like, well, Tim Hortons sucks, but it's Canadian, so Tim Hortons is great. <laughs> it's not even Canadian anymore, but sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And that's honestly why I enjoy your work so much, because it's provocative in the best way, that it really makes you look at things differently and question things in a in a fair manner. It's not just about shock value as sometimes we see on the right. It's profound. And I and that's why I think your voice is important. I, I want to go back to another tweet of yours, and this was in June of 2019, and you were lamenting how online trolls have undeniably hurt your career. And when I read that, it was a very stark admission because it almost seems to feed the trolls that validation. And like I said, like, I love your work. I might not agree with it all the time, but I think- what. (laughs) <laughs> I'll tell you, you I'll tell you that I agree with it all the time. I would never say that to your face. <laughs> or or you know over DM or whatever. Yeah. But you know, I think you're an important thinker and I think it's a shame that someone whose manifestos are so shallow and threadbare like Jordan Peterson can be this Canadian international thought leader quote unquote. But someone like you, who is bold and courageous to critically question our culture and our politics, even if the line of inquiry makes us uncomfortable, I mean, that's sort of the point, your work is what we need more of in in our culture. So, again, to your own admission, though, it comes at a cost. So why do you personally take on these battles? I mean, you're smart, your work is accessible, you're easy to listen to. Why not just, you know, water it down and get a broadcasting <laughs> gig or something? Why did you choose <laughs> yeah. this path? I was, I was waiting for you. To, anyway, yeah. Um, what were you waiting for me to say? No. no CBC? Make, no, no. I was going to make a really <laughs> bad joke. And then I was like, no, that's not going to sound right. It's going to sound weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I wrote that tweet, I had just finished writing a brief for uh, a federal committee on online hate. And I was so pissed that no one had asked me to write this brief. Hmm. <laughs> so, so they had the liberals set this this committee where people were studying online hate, and it was like a last minute. Oh, can you just write a ten page report or something like this on online hate? And it came from like someone who followed me on Twitter who got in touch with the NDP, and the NDP was like, "Oh yeah, we forgot about her," which is like, <laughs> no offense, the NDP, but fuck you, right? <laughs> um, and so I was, I, 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 I do my best writing uh, in in airplanes and so i had just flown to winnipeg and i was reflecting on how pissed i was that out of that whole situation nothing happened from the perspective of studying how online mobs seek to control the narrative right Mm -hmm. no one asked me for my archive of tweets no one sat down with me for a, a proper interview into what 
actually happened like from from what i could see the way i was getting hate and the waves that came up and down and how the 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 mob was able to so easily manipulate the mainstream media into doing what the mob wanted it to do i was mm -hmm. so shocked that nothing useful came out of that experience from the perspective of how is this changing what is acceptable in society and like you know erase me entirely from this but like what happened in that moment yeah. So I was super, I was super down. I was super down. I was also in Winnipeg, which is just such a fucking great city. And I get really melancholic when I'm in Winnipeg. <laughs> so, I mean, I was just kind of like in a place is all I can say. <laughs> um, but do you still feel that way? Oh, fuck yeah. All the time. Yeah. So like I could not water myself down. Like I just can't. Mm -hmm. uh, it would not be possible. And, you know, I'm also, I have to be honest, like I'm a product of being outside of Canada right now, right? I don't live in English Canada. I mm -hmm. live in what is almost a completely different world from the mm. rest of Canada, which is also, I think, why I'm, I'm able to do the cultural criticism that I'm able to do is because I'm just outside of it. Like, it's just sure. like stuff that's obvious to me. And I've always been outside the mainstream. I mean, if you met me as a kid, you'd be like, yeah, like, that's Nora. And it, I'm still Nora. I mean, that's literally, this is who I've been my whole life. Yeah. But, you know, the, the reality, though, is, is that, like, I, I am extremely bitter. Uh, and I hate admitting that because I don't want to say that people have won. But I am extremely bitter that, I, that I'm shut out of pretty much any mainstream platform. That, <laughs> makes me, that makes me crazy. That makes me crazy. And it makes me uh, very frustrated and sad. And it also means that I have to get, like, get creative about how I talk about what I talk about, where I talk about the things I talk about. Mm -hmm. But um, the reality is, is that there is no place for someone like me because our news media has so changed that in the past, someone like me probably would have had a column in the Toronto Star, right? Or, or would have had a column in the Globe and Mail. And it's just like, oh, that's just the lefty, like whatever. But like, everything has shrunk so much and the consensus of what is acceptable and unacceptable has shrunk so much mm -hmm. that I am a raving heretic <laughs> in compared <laughs> to what is being published in the Globe and Mail or the National Post, right? Sure, yeah. And, and it sucks, yeah. Like, what would my career look like if it was the 1960s and I was just like a woman trying to like break into a newsroom and be like loud and mouthy and, and swearing all the time? I, I probably would have had a TV show, right? Like, <laughs> and and instead, I have literally nothing. I'm I like I, I literally have nothing that I don't have to then kind of make for myself. Yeah. And um, and yeah, that makes me extremely bitter. But um, I also derive great pleasure from being able to think and write critically, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't change that for anything. And I mean. It's, uh, I'll just always be saying to myself, like, I could have been a contender. <laughs> <laughs> Pathetically over here. I mean, the thing is, is in oh, Quebec City, like, who the hell's yeah. going to hire me, right? CBC can't hire me because I'm friends with everybody that works there. And they literally cannot hire, like, they're like, oh, I know you're a spokesperson for this group, but can we get someone else on, on air? And it's hmm. like, fucking, fuck you guys, just hire me. And they're like, oh, we can't. Huh. So, um, but yeah, isn't like it I'm weird not... that you, you're going through that experience and I know he's not doing so great lately, so I don't want to punch on him too much, but 
Oh, you do I have, Okay, please. <laughs> <laughs> but then you have someone like Jordan Peterson, who his writing is so much more inflammatory, in my opinion. And then when you look at his self-help, like the stuff that's actually in his books, it's so unoriginal. And it's yeah. just every other kind of self-help, uh, be accountable for yourself, self-help book, but repackaged in this quote-unquote edgy, masculine way. But he was upheld as this great thought leader, and people are calling him like the intellectual of our times. And it's like, he's not saying anything that original, you guys. No, no. Um, Jordan Peterson is serving a very important purpose, which is to sow individualism and doom among the the young male population. Mm-hmm. Right. My my goal is to is to sow revolutionary and radical responses to the status quo and Mm -hmm. obviously uh no one wants that if their bottom line depends on a subservient depressed atomized and isolated populace right? right i mean we're not in the same world like peterson is not popular because he's smart he's not popular because he's uh interesting He's popular because he's selling a bill of goods that is exactly meeting a, a certain segment of the population right now where they are. Hmm. Now, I don't know what my reach or someone else on the left's reach would be if we were given the same tools that Peterson has been given by the mainstream press. Mm-hmm. If we were put on, I mean, wh- like, what would happen if, if we had this conversation about the Serb on, on, on the national or sure. on the Sunday edition, or or I don't even know what the fuck. We have so few options that that's like it, right? Um, like we, but we it just needs can't, to be heard. Like it would change it and open so many minds. Of course <laughs> it does. And this is that's that's what really like is my passion to move forward. I mean, and that's I'm sure that's why you do the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you you are featuring uh, ideas and issues that you think are really important, and your audience tunes in because they know that you're curating. Uh, a, a set of experiences that they want to hear and that are, is going to speak to them, right? We have independent media right now that looks the way it does, which is run by people that can't afford to do anything and they're not getting paid and it's really pathetic mm-hmm. because the mainstream media has let us down. And it, it, yeah, and it, it's again, like the, the walking that line between being extremely bitter and not bitter is really hard, right? Like, like I, the last time I was on The National, there was a complaint sent to the ombudsman about me because I was talking about M103, which was the anti-Islamophobia bill right. that the liberals served. And they were like, Nora Loretto is a radical socialist Islamist. Get her off the air. Right? Like just ridiculous. Hmm. Wow. And the national never asked me back. <laughs> right? So <laughs> even you know, though the complaint was so dumb. Oh, like you can read it yourself. Yeah. It's the worst. And then and the, <laughs> the ombudsman's like, no, nah, like Loretto did all these work, like these things in this 30 second interview was fine. Like it did not. But then, you know, <clears throat> the producers probably just didn't want to deal with it in the future. Exactly. No, yeah. exactly. And so and so when you have a cowardly national press that that is afraid of losing its funding and mm. that is afraid of being called left wing, even though they're not even fucking close to left wing. Of course, there's going to be a total shutout of, of of thinkers. And because there's a shutout of thinkers, there's not many of us saying this stuff. 
yeah. you know? And it's really brutal because there's a lot of people that think it. There's a lot of people that have the capacity and that have the chops to be able to write this stuff, but mm-hmm. there's no living in it, right? Yeah. I mean, like if I didn't live in, in the city with the cheapest rent in Canada, with a partner who has a job at a university, I mean, I couldn't do the work that I'm doing. And so I see that as a responsibility that I have to the ideas that I believe in, that if I can't give like all of myself to this work, then I'm not doing that service that I believe in. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I take a, I take a lot of, of, of comfort in knowing that, uh, you know, it has to happen. And I try to keep that bitterness at bay um, because it is always there because I am really, really always fucking better. <laughs> but, but I mean, on the balance of things, it's there, but it's not, I mean, I'm not driven by bitterness. I'm driven by uh, uh, this this incredible feeling in my chest that like my my heart is going to explode for the things that I see and the people that I I know and the people that I watch and the people mm-hmm. that I I see being ravaged by these by these forces that we can change it and 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 you can change it. We we all have the capacity to change these things, but we have to build ourselves the tools to do it. And we're not going to learn those tools from the mainstream. Like, just yeah. period. We can't. They're shutting us out, and it's intentional. I love that, Nora. And I, <laughs> I'm inspired. I'm oh, inspired good. by hearing that. That's amazing. <laughs> we have to wrap it up. I think we've already gone over time. But where do the people find you? Where do they learn more? Where do they get inspired even more? Oh, man. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you can find me in Quebec City. Uh, if you're around, which no one is because no one's allowed to travel right now. <laughs> um, but my writing, I, as you said at the beginning, my writing's kind of all over the place. Um, but I, I try to share it all the time on Twitter. So it's probably the easiest place to find me is at Twitter. My Twitter handle is no lore. So N-O-L-O-R-E, like my name, Nora Loretto. And uh, and I, sh- I share a podcast with Sandy Hudson. So sandyandnora.com is where you can find the podcast. One of my favorites. Aw, <laughs> Well, I love your podcast too. I mean, there's such a you. bright light coming from the West part of this country. Thank you. That means so much to me. And honestly, thank you for doing this interview. Thanks for being here through Zoom. I don't know when you'll be in Vancouver, but I am buying you that beer. I'm oh, such a big fan. I cannot fan. wait. <laughs> I cannot neither. wait. Yeah. <laughs> me neither. Especially, I'm, yeah, there's, I, I'll be hugging everyone. Uh, I, will, <laughs> I will ask for consent first, of course, but, you know, I'll be throwing I, I, I it out just, there. I, th- I had this tweet like after two weeks of this and I was like, I am going to platonically fuck the brains out of everybody when this is over. I mean, my God. <laughs> I think you can get away with saying that, but maybe I can't. So we'll, we'll let you, you hang on to that one. That's yours. But I am honored you would do the show. Thank you so much. And I'm glad that there are voices like yours keeping an eye out on the politics and the culture during this crisis. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. People, there you have it. Another dream guest of mine. She is absolutely my favorite Canadian politics and culture commentator. She is one of Canada's most important voices. And I hope you follow her work online because it is thought-provoking and it is important. She's a gem. She is Nora Loretto. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>